Hey you, you're listening to Sloancast, your one-stop shop deep dive where we discuss anything and everything about the greatest band of all time. Jay Ferguson, Chris Murphy, Patrick Pellin, and Andrew Scott collectively known as Sloan. We are your fellow superfan hosts. I'm Rob. This is Ken. Ken, what's good, my friend? As much as I love having a-list guests on this podcast mm, and yes. you know really have them spew their expertise and experience uh, with the <laughs> spew. band you spew it out it's uh fantastic to just sort of be sitting here with you today rob and mm. getting back to that sort of theoretical hypothetical what if format of our podcast um mm. that we've used to explore topics like never hear the end of it topics like that 1998 1999 hectic period um and commonwealth as well and we're diving now straight into a topic uh, that is really appropriate for the 30th anniversary of this band, kind of looking at that prolonged period of genesis of the band from 1991 through and really until the end of the Geffen era um, in 94-95. So Rob, why don't you uh, bring the guests up to date in terms of what we'll be covering today? I'm going to be using a Murph word here. We are going to contextualize the shit out of things here. And I want to say... This is speculation to the max, okay? So if it should the guys in the band hear this or anybody else who's precious about Twice Removed, and, and I am, okay? You probably want to hit stop now because you might just get angry. We're not saying that we would have preferred an album other than Smeared, other than Twice Removed, rather, to follow up Smeared. This is just some fun what if in another dimension. What if the guys had stayed with the Smeared sound, you know, whether they recorded it with Terry Pulliam or whatever, um, you know, the, the, the big guitars, the My Bloody Valentine, you know uh, vocals guitar that, that, that production style mm. and 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 basically had a lot of the same well basically the same material that they pulled from for the twice removed album the demos that were leading up to the album and so on yeah what would a smeared two album have looked like sounded like what would it have been called um and then at the end maybe we can speculate a bit about what the career would have looked at looked like after you know but i just want to sort of say off the top here my thesis on this is i'm glad that they did what they did and i'm glad that history is how it is right because if we if we don't have twice removed which is that perfect bridge between smeared and one chord to another it's songs that were written perhaps partially in the style of smeared like i like the when i hear Mm. tr i think you know in in certain cases i'm hearing a song that if you were to just step on the distortion pedal you know the drums and the style the songwriting the singing everything is it's basically like an acoustic or not an acoustic but just like a lo-fi version of a smeared song absolutely and even since especially songs like shame shame for example there's a a few worried now could have just been on smeared you know sure um exactly as they are on twice removed so it's important i think to make that distinction we're not shitting on twice removed or whatever but we're just having fun with this idea with this speculation and had they not had that perfect bridge album where it has like the writing of smeared and the sound of the future um we we who knows where they would have been and we can get into that a bit later like i said you know like one chord would it would have ever ever even happened or sounded that way or whatever um you know would they have no longer been a band after that second record or whatever and so i am so happy that history is the way it is god you know and twice removed is a fucking perfect album and i mean they received accolades you know justly after it came out so sure um chart magazine wouldn't have existed had twice removed not become what it was (laughs) exactly Okay, thanks. It's another new one called Ill Place Trust. Not that you know any of our old... Should we 
maybe dive into the timeline just a little bit as a refresher for those listeners who need it. Um, I know that you're all in the super fan category pretty much if you're listening to this podcast. But if you're not, and uh, if you're not totally familiar with uh, every little detail of the band's career between sort of 91 and 94, maybe I'll just paint a picture of what the timeline was like roughly for the band back then. So um, Sloan officially formed in 1991, uh, and their album Smeared was released in 92, in October of 92, sort of at at the absolute pinnacle of the popularity of grunge right and at the beginning of the end of that mostly british noise pop scene so talking about bands like jesus and mary chain uh my bloody valentine even swerve driver um and artistically you know with a couple of exceptions maybe thinking about like sugar tune or another track or two on on, on smeared that album resides directly at the crossroads of these stylistic influences right so it even delves deeper into the 80s into influences like dinosaur jr or sonic youth but this was basically like right down the alley of what geffen was putting out there at the time and specifically of what their alternative label dgc was doing at that time and continue to do for for the coming few years so like needless to say underwhelmed was sort of the the kind of surprise hit that DGC totally wanted to latch onto, um, and the promo work done following that single was enough to make it chart worthy, um, or at least to give it a bit of a profile, at least in Canada. But you know, the support from Santa Monica fizzled over the course of promoting that album. So, like for example, not too many fans know that "Take It In" was a single off the album. Right, and that's because there was little to no support behind it by that time from Geffen. So this was later in '93, right? So either the Canadian flavor of the month card had been played out, or DGC essentially just forgotten about the band, <laughs> right? right? So at any rate, there was you know I don't want to speculate too much on that, but there were a lot of question marks for the band in the period between the release of Smeared in October of '92 in Canada. Uh, January 93 in the States, and the release of Twice Removed in 1994. So how committed was Geffen to the band? How hands-on did they want to be with the band's artistic direction? What would the next record sound like? So what would have happened had Sloan been pressured by Geffen to keep their next release, (laughs) exactly, nudging, to keep their next release um, in in the same stylistic vein as Smeared, right? It, It seems to be of the time. Or if maybe if Geffen genuinely put more steam behind the band after having basically relegated Sloan to the farm squad halfway through the production of uh, promotion of Smeared, mm. you know, or what would have happened if if they didn't get Jim Rondinelli on production but they got someone else? So this is entirely hypothetical, but you know, you said this is speculative. I feel as though it's a speculation that is certainly justified because a lot of stuff could have happened. You know, it could have been that uh, Todd Sullivan, who was their A&R guy at the time, who whose next big act was Weezer, right? This, that was his next big find. And he was a little bit more involved in the actual production of the Blue Album. So it could have been that he just said, hey, you know what? I've got this great band in, in L.A., um, you guys might want to have a little listen to what they're doing, which is essentially, you know, did happen during the twice removed sessions. You know, there was Sloan were aware of what was happening on the left coast with Weezer. 
Hmm. And it might have been that Todd Sullivan said, hey, you know what? I want to get you guys to where Weezer are because I feel as though you guys have the same marketability. And he would have gotten a little bit more hands-on with the project. Yeah. In our in our Patrick episode, and if you haven't heard that, listener, I mean, Jesus, go back and check it out. But <clears throat> in that episode, he talks about the Blue Album either coming out like right as they were finishing Twice Removed perhaps yeah. or right in that period and hearing that and for him at least thinking like, Jesus, though, this is what we should have done, you know? And in a way, there are s- some touchstones here that are, are similar-ish because if you look at the, the Weezer Blue album shit before mm-hmm. that album, like some of those same songs like My Name is Jonas and so on, sure. they were very the like, tapes. yeah, I, I don't want to say grungified, but they more more so like they were a little more metal-ish, yeah. you know, like a little more uh, complicated and, and that kind of thing. Yeah. And um and, and with, with for the Blue Album, things were very streamlined. It's as if Rick Ocasek said, listen, you're playing four on the floor, kick, snare, yeah. kick, snare, and yeah. that's it. Yeah. Like, no fucking around. Well, I credit, um, I credit Blue Album almost entirely to Rick Ocasek. You sure. know, I credit, I credit the, the sound of the Blue Album, and it's a sound that almost defies that era because it's post-grunge. It's not, you know, you have, you have this immense guitar sound but it's very very gated it's like it's 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 really compressed and gated and it almost sounds as though it almost reminds me of like rubber soul in a way in the sense that the channeling is also pretty like it's a fairly split up stereo effect as well so it it gives you a cleaner overall sound and the vocals are totally clean and prominent and the drum sound is totally clean and prominent and you know the separation between channels is, is is large so it's it's moving away from this kind of soupiness that you get in earlier like we can go through a list of the releases of geffen stuff in like 93 94 um there's and i'm, I'm going to include some some geffen geffen releases and not just dgc but so aerosmith's get a grip guns and roses spaghetti incident i believe todd sullivan was also involved with with gnr at that point in time in utero um the teenage fan club album 13 which is essentially a base star album um <laughs> counting crows august and everything after we forget that counting crows were on geffen so nirvana's unplugged came out in 94 i believe um hole live through this by hole uh obviously weezer coming out in 94 sonic youth were still on geffen at that point in time experimental jet set trash and no star so you know this is sort of like the sonic spectrum where we're at with with geffen in that period for sure. And I mean, you mentioned Nirvana. I want to talk about Kurt Cobain in a second, because that is kind of relevant. I mean, the guys have been pigeonholed with like Canada's Beatles, Canada's Nirvana, but we're talking about like the biggest artists ever, you know, like are there bigger bands than Nirvana and Beatles? No. And it's it's kind of rad that, you know, the greatest band of all time would be compared to them <clears throat> because they're sort of the... You know, I don't know. Like they're they're big on the scene and whatever. So I, I want to take a step back though. It's a huge difference. I mean, like I said, with the songs on the Blue Album, the, the demos of of that record could have existed in the earlier '90s. You know, and, and the difference for people listening at home, the drums make such a huge difference on a song. Like a song can be written, and the drums can be everything. You know, like I mean, imagine Teen Spirit just being like having a beat like fucking Billy Jean, just. It doesn't. It doesn't feel the same at all. Uh, and obviously, the Sloan guys were influenced by Nirvana and Dave Grohl for you know songs, especially like Underwhelmed. You know, mm. considering the version that was put out on Peppermint, and then the version that was eventually like the, which they refer to as like the Cramps version, and then you know the version right. that was on 
the album on, on smeared rather which is the sort of the aneurysm version where things are just like instead of 100%. it being straight it's like boom you know um and so the songs on the blue album could have had that kind of style too that sort of like nirvana bombast that sort of pixies vibe or whatever Mm -hmm. but they don't they have a very straight 4-4 beat and that's indicative of just like classic rock music like i mean you look Mm -hmm. at the first couple years of the beatles you look at the the stones big songs um and just any sort of classic rock song it's going to just be like a four on the floor beat with some you know interpretation and some you know little changing it up here and there or whatever like ticket to ride is a good example where ticket to ride and coax me i kind of think have a little bit in common that way um and they're kind of maybe musical cousins from the drum standpoint um but yeah the the songs that that we're going to talk about here and this intro is fucking long jesus christ but the songs we're talking about here a huge difference is made when the song is essentially the same. You turn the distortion off and then you mm. take the drums from being sort of like a wild abandoned kind of like Dave Grohl, you know, bomb fest to just mm. a straight four on the floor. Hate My Generation yeah. is a good example. And we'll kind of get into yeah. that in just a second. But, yeah. um, you know, like Coax Me, Hate My Generation, Every Needle Has an Eye, the demo as well, are good examples of everybody just going like, okay, straight drums, you know, bops, yeah. bops, bops, yeah. bops. Uh, and kind of just leaving that be. And I think the thinking there is for it to be more timely. Do you know what I mean? Mm. I think that uh, the guys were kind of pulling, and we're kind of going off on a tangent here, what else is new, but the the guys were thinking, I I think at the time, you know, we have these classic rock influences, um, and we want to make something more in this vein that will be a bit more timeless, because we clearly kind of hopped on the bandwagon with the last one, and and it was a big hit, and it's an amazing album, Mm. but it definitely is something, like you were saying, that exists in a very specific period of time, they maybe already saw the writing on the wall. The record comes out in 94. There's a great interview with Kurt Cobain from 94. I want to say it's somewhere in Toronto. I want to say it's Eric M is the interviewer. Mm. Um, And he's talking about the future and how he wants to, obviously they had just recorded Unplugged, but in the future, he wanted to kind of be more like a Neil Young type guy, you know, somebody Mm. who can just sit down and play acoustic guitar and keep things a little more basic and not be just sort of like, you know, quiet, loud, quiet, loud. And um, so it's interesting (laughs) to kind of tie that into a a smeared follow-up, which eventually became Twice Removed, which is the first song on the Twice Removed album proper is Pen Pals, which is a song about you know, basically recounting the words of letters written to Kurt Cobain himself. Sure. So, it's, totally. so it's interesting that that was kind of going on at the time, that mindset of we're pulling away from this sort of grunge sound and Sloan, who were compared to Nirvana very directly, mm. are mm. referencing in a sort of side, what, what am I trying to say? They're referencing Nirvana in sort of like a parallel way, you know, yeah. Um, yeah. not directly. You mentioned it, and um, but it's important to note as well that, you know, the band was was just tired of these antics in quotes d- during tours as well like they couldn't tour this this material for 10 years in a row like you wouldn't you wouldn't have been able to extend the smear tour until 19 or in, until 2002 um so it was it's important to mention that they you know came into the recording of smeared with a certain and we talked about this in the Terry Pulliam episode with a certain aesthetic in terms of how they wanted that production to go. Um, and that didn't necessarily lend itself to, it, it, it wasn't necessarily where their influences were really at. You know, if you listen, like, for example, to Patrick, you know, there's a big divide between JMC 
and Dinosaur Jr. And I feel as though Patrick in general is probably more of a Dinosaur Jr. guy, you know. So you can you can riff on Dinosaur Jr. for 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 a number of albums. There's enough breadth in their styles, and it's a little bit more mellow and it's a little bit more introspective and certainly a little bit more musical from my perspective. Um so I think you know, and I, I believe that it's Jay who references that in the liner notes to uh, the deluxe version of Twice Removed. It's just like, you know, we 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 didn't want to continue to tour that material. Andrew was dying back there, and my eardrums were dead basically every night. So we felt as though that sort of that sort of grunge style of performance was also, um, you know, it it had been worn out by the time '94 came around. And it, it feels as though every other band was was already doing this, or they've already you know they've already gotten through doing this. Um, so it's you know it's sort of like there was a threshold where they're going to go into into releasing an album that would have been in the vein of in utero or whatever or do they take this pivot and do something completely different based on what they were listening to at the time especially in jay's material you can totally hear beatles influences starting to seep in you know it's 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 a slippery slope trying to compare and contrast and and say the b word in this podcast but certainly in jay's material from 94 on you can start to hear a little bit a little bit of that influence in there and we we can't forget 94 95 beatles anthology that was sort of the time of the second coming um it's important to keep in mind that this was happening in the musical climate popularly in 1994 and i want to talk about what what their influences at the time would have been as well i do want to take a sidestep too you mentioned it i thought i just want to say it just a sort of a side note here. I, I loved how on the Patrick episode he referred to them as Dinosaur. Mm. Not Dinosaur Jr. Because if you're a true fan, you know that they were called Dinosaur and like right. Bush X. Yeah. They were given Bush the Junior because there was some other dinosaur out there. Anyway. Um, but you, you just touched... Bush X in Canada? Like, wasn't that just a thing? Correct. Thing? Yeah, yeah. And, and I feel like that's a thing. You know, there are bands out there where their their name is something else or whatever. I'm trying to think of like Ghost BC is, is a more recent example or whatever. Um, you mentioned the 93 tour. This is a good thing to bring up here. <clears throat> and it's a very important step in the story, you know, and I think it was the Patrick episode two where he mentioned, you know, getting everybody's get thrown on a bus and they're just thrown out for these, mm. for this mega long smear tour, you know, in the U S and in Europe and stuff. And, <clears throat> you know, that's where their metal was really made. Like, mm. you know, in, in, I think in some cases, in, in examples of other bands, perhaps a time that would unite a group of people or allow them to feel maybe perhaps more celebrated or joyous. This was something that, from my perspective, at least, it sounds like they were really just put through the ringer, you know, just away from home, out on the road, being just driven into the dirt, you know, any sort of. And, and at this point, too, they've only been they've only known each other like a year. I mean, as a That's band, funny. I mean, yeah. Chris and yeah. Jay obviously were friends previously. Um, and as Patrick said as well, they've kind of got a relationship like brothers, which is sort of off and on, you know, mm. all the time, flipping back and forth, um, as you do with family. <clears throat> but, sure. um, you know, this tour, this 93 tour, or so the smear tour, rather, would have just really put them through the ringer. And um, it's important, like you said, to to be aware of that going into this next album and to the choices that would be made. Uh, and obviously that that happened in reality. So in this alternate reality, we're talking about, and, and, and you mentioned like, you know, would DGC have been the ones to push them or nudge them, as you said? 
in my sort of false reality here, in my speculation reality, Sloan are deciding to make a smeared follow-up that sounds more mm. in line with that album. That's right. right. So, yeah. <clears throat> and you mentioned how invested DGC would be. Now, I don't know what a record, typical record budget at the time would be. I'm, I'm assuming Guns N' Roses had millions of dollars. Uh, Sloan, it says, according to Wikipedia, spent 100... Well, no, they didn't spend, but the record label spent $120,000 to record the album. And obviously sure, that would which be is re- recouped. That's yeah. like 10 times the budget of Smeared. Sure. And they would have... Yeah, exactly. Uh, and and, and th- that album, that money would obviously have been recouped after or whatever. But that's a sizable, decent budget as far as I'm concerned. I mean, maybe mm. on the lower side, considering some of the bigger bands that would have been established at the time or whatever. But... Mm. Um, and, and I really think that the decision to go with Jim Rondinelli and... And, and to go to New Jersey and to use the Lenny Kravitz studio, it was already in mind that they were going to make something a little more timeless sounding. It was going to be less about right. just sort of like making noise with guitars and trying to sound like My Bloody Valentine and to sound more timeless and sort of um, put that investment into you know the studio and, and, and having the various elements of the songs sound great sure. and not just sound great as a whole. So, um, <clears throat> do you yeah. think that like if if they wouldn't have gotten Rondinelli on the project, and I'm, I don't feel as though that was a choice that was like I, I'm not. I think it's well documented that they weren't all totally happy with that selection of producer. Mm. Um, certainly, by the time the recording sessions had gone on for for a few weeks. Do you feel as though Rondinelli himself is almost responsible for the sound of Twice Removed, or is this like what would have happened if they would have gotten? I don't. I know that they speculate in the uh, deluxe uh, box set liner notes on like, oh well, our first you know pipe pipe dream was to get Mike D on the project. Hmm. I can just imagine what you know. Maybe it's something that's like check your head, maybe in terms of production or like, but. Do you feel as though Rondinelli had that fingerprint? Because if you listen to his earlier stuff, Rondinelli was the guy who did Girlfriend by Matthew Sweet. He was he did a couple of Matthew Sweet albums up until that point. So you got that like Matthew Sweet has a bit of a cleaner vibe to him as well. Very much indie like in that indie rock. And they would have played shows with Matthew Sweet. I don't know if this would have occurred before the recording of Toys Are Moved, but I mean he was obviously like a pretty big player on the charts at the time in terms in terms of like modern rock. Totally. And he was like you know, that was I think ninety two, ninety one, ninety two girlfriends, so it was pretty fresh. Um, so it wasn't as though Rondinelli was this nobody and you know, I I looked at his um Discogs uh catalog uh prior to recording this and he's got some fairly big names in there prior to twice removed you know he was doing the bodines and i don't know i i, I just feel as though you know they mentioned that rondanelli was put on the project to give this sort of clean compressed sound it's funny i mean I, it's hard to tell like obviously I, i'm not exactly certain who I don't know if they, perhaps if the band, I'm just all over the place here, guys, sorry. I, I don't know if the guys maybe gave DGC a list of producers, like, here's who we like, or if, if some list was batted around and they're going, well, here's who you can afford. Um, because obviously, Rondinelli is, like you say, at the time, a fairly uh, prolific pop record producer and that's sort of the direction they're wanting to go and i'm sure words like and especially if you hear the demos too like uh only in some cases are the demos that appear on the deluxe twice removed box set and on, on they're on apple music they're on spotify which we'll talk about later but only in certain cases do they really sound like songs that live on smeared you know you can feel them pushing into this twice removed mm-hmm. era you know like a lot a good amount of the songs have the feel and the vibe of the eventual album where it's like mm-hmm. you know the guitars are just clean chant 
channel, um, that kind of thing. Um, well, drums are a little more right? simple. It's not, it's not overproduced. Sure, but I mean, and, and we haven't heard really those smeared demos. I mean, you can kind of count Peppermint maybe, but although that was all recorded mm. at the same time. But I mean, it's very clear from the TR demos that they're not going in that super smeared direction. You know, like Patrick's yeah. songs could have certainly existed on a smeared two as they were on the, in the demos. But sure. um, so I, I wouldn't say that Jim Ron and Ellie is the one kind of pushing for this cleaner sound. I think they're already mm. in that direction to speculate. And I hadn't heard that thing about Mike D being a producer. God, how cool would that have been? And I, and I, and I think about the, the BC boys tracks where it's just them playing like their instrumental songs. Sure. Sure. Um, and, and perhaps maybe that was maybe more what they were thinking of, like just how great those tracks sound, you know, like the fuzz bass and just the really uh, underproduced, not, I don't want to say underproduced, but just really simple, simple sounding drums. And, well, it's almost um, lo-fi. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And again, more timeless. I mean, like those Beastie Boys instrumental songs, like th- th- their hip hop stuff's pretty timeless too, like in that genre, obviously. Totally. But um their instrumental stuff, uh, whether it's stuff that kind of leans more towards like a jazz vibe or just like an old school mm. R&B vibe or a boogie vibe, uh, the way that that stuff's recorded, it also has a very timeless uh, sound to it. It, it sounds, mm. it's hard to pin down when you hear those Beastie Boys instrumentals, when exactly it was recorded. Was it recorded right. in the late eighties or was it recorded in the mid nineties? Like a good uh, point. Yeah. You know, Ill communication era or something like that. It's really tough to pin down to an era because it, it is so not of the time, you know? Mm. Um, so perhaps that that's what they were kind of looking to do. And, sure. and Mike D being a drummer, you know, uh, I don't know if he was maybe the one of the three producing those sessions or maybe somebody who was more involved. He, yeah, he was certainly more involved in the sound of those, especially mm-hmm. sort of post um, Paul's boutique albums. I think that's when right. he started to really kind of um, cut his teeth in, in, in production. But Mike D was, um, I feel as though Mike D was the guy who had a little bit more of the musical vision um, behind albums like Ill Communication, Beastie Boys would have been in LA at this point in time recording Ill Communication. Um, I, you know, that's maybe a completely separate parallel universe that we can dive into at some point um, in the future. But it's an interesting discussion because, and you mentioned as well that the twice removed demos being quite clean and quite true to their final form on the album well not all of them we'll get into that but what i find really interesting and you know if you try to just define what's the sound of sloan in 93 there are some fairly obvious examples out there that you can use to kind of get closer to that so if you know we have the bootleg from the um is that all i get concert the winnipeg right. concert um yep. that fantastic bootleg where you can kind of hear a little bit of evidence that was i think uh september of 93 it would have been patrick's mm-hmm. birthday um and you can hear you know in, in terms of songs like shame shame that have been debuted or were being played on that tour already mm-hmm. um it's still they're still having to make these songs pen pals fit into a smeared set list mm-hmm. so there's still i think the drum the drumming style is still a little bit more in the direction of smeared obviously they're still using the same effects pedals on stage that they would have been using for the other songs right. but we also have stuff like you know the london the london material that was recorded with with angeli dutt you right. know it's i find it astounding to think that you know listen to ragdoll and laying blame and think about you know this was recorded a couple of months before Twice Removed material was, it was re- recorded in the summer of 93 and Twice Removed began at the very beginning of like in, in earnest recording at the very beginning of 94. Yeah. So there's a couple of months between those tracks. It's essentially and smeared in as much as Navy Blues and Between the Bridges bridges were um, taken from the same, cut from the same cloth and really just 
put together in, in, in different albums, a lot of the material that you have in Smeared and Twice Removed come from that same kind of creative pot. So, you know, songs like Autobiography it existed probably prior to Sloan forming. Um, Ill Place Trust, you know, those there, there are tracks out there that had been out there for a while. And uh, yeah, if, if you listen to Laying Blame, I feel as though Laying Blame, or other, the other way around, if you listen to Pen Pals, which is sort of chronologically the next track in their catalog after Laying Blame, Pen Pals has more in common with Spin Our Wheels in many yeah. ways than it does with Laying Blame. Totally. Yeah. You know, it's astounding. This is this is a couple of months. You bring up an interesting point here that I think is in, in, important to mention. And then I have some important questions to get to. You know, you listened and, and, and you were talking about Pen Pals and sort of the later material, but Pen Pals also has a little something in common with that original underwhelmed version that was on here and now. So not the peppermint version, but the version mm. that has the guitar that has the, the strumming the, pattern, yeah. Yeah, that has the percussion way up in the mix. That's you right. know. Um it's very pen palsy. It's very twice removed sounding to me, you know, just sort of sort of like it's not like screaming with guitars it's not these you know crazy delay you know fuzz pedal my bloody valentine sounding stuff um so it is important to note that it wasn't as though they went from being this my bloody valentine band into twice removed i think that they were always sort of this sort of that the songs existed as these timeless, just classic songs. Hmm. Um, especially even if you listen to stuff like Carney Lake Road, which I've been getting into like crazy over the past hmm. couple of weeks. I'm like going on this like crazy Carney Lake Road trip. <laughs> um, songs like Painting a Room and stuff that you, sure. that you hear on the Murder Records podcast. Yeah. Um, such an amazing song and, and and you hear sort of like the little tales and uh, the, the vocalization of things to come, you know? So it's it's as if they literally saw the light landscape, the musical landscape in 91, 92, and said, okay, we're driving headlong into that direction. We're fans, but this also happens to be like, like uh, you know, Terry mentioned on the show, and Chris has mentioned previously that, you know, they're recording with Terry Pulliam while Nirvana is exploding. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And so they would be hearing aneurysm, you know, and, and, and Andrew had talked about seeing Dave Grohl play in Scream in Toronto in the late 80s. Mm. Um, so they're taking all these things, they're pointing into a pot and going, okay, we're just going to full on go in this one direction. So it's not as though they were stuck in this sort of like template. I think that these songs were given that sort of shine of early 90s sort of like shoegaze, you know, uh, yeah whatever grunge if you want to call it or whatever and mm-hmm. they sort of just struck gold with sort of being that band at that time and yeah. they were jumping around on top of each other like you said like that 93 tour i love the joke back in the day where chris is talking about how you know they had to learn they wrote all these like great songs for twice removed and then they had to learn, learn how to play them live right. and also at the time patrick is like you know hey get off of me like there's no more tumbling right, on top of each other like yeah. get the hell away from me like that relationship is already in that state so um it's so funny but yeah so i, I feel like they were these great songwriters mm. smeared happened it's its own sort of like island in a way mm. because it's, it's, it's it sounds the way it does and um and then when they go into Twice Removed, they're basically just turning those effects off in a way and kind yeah. of step, taking a step back so i think that's a, a great point that you bring up yeah yeah and it's going to be a continuum one way there are elements of smeared in twice removed in the final album mm-hmm. there are certainly elements of it there are parts of it where you feel as though okay twice removed is certainly a 94 album it's not 
closer to 12 than it is to smeared. There, you know, shame, shame could have been on smeared. Yeah. You know, trying to pinpoint that 93 sound is so important for this discussion because, mm. and I would love to have a recording of that Lion's Den show in New York from November of 93 when they were premiering a lot of the twice removed material. Yeah. And I think that's also the show that we were talking about with Stephen Cook and, um, and Sean Pelly. Right. Where a lot of their friends went down from Halifax and they went on a sort of basically in in a bus to see them in in New York. You know, so that would have been, if if material does exist of that performance, I doubt it. But if it does, man, I'd love to get my hands on that. Well, if it does, I know who has it. Like I was looking, (laughs) I was looking at Murph's Instagram to get, just a sneak peek into the process here, folks, to get some photos of Kevin for our Kevin Hilliard episode. And I noticed a picture that Murph had on his Instagram of just like, I think at the time he might've been working on the one chord box set, I think. Mm. And, um, he's just got a big tub of like tapes and it's just, I mean, I think it's stuff that was maybe more focused around the one chord period, like between 94, 95, 96, but um, it's just so much stuff. So if anybody's got that, you know, tape anywhere, that late 90 or 93 tape rather, uh, yeah. it's that guy. But um, yeah, I would love to hear that too. Cause that was one of my important questions. And here are some important questions to kind of hit you with. So when did the transformation take place? When did they go from, you know, Vermonstrous in 92 mm. to early 93? You know, they're obviously playing the smeared stuff live into the Winnipeg bootleg, which is, mm. did you say, middle of the end of like fall, September? It's September, yes, Patrick's birthday. So, yeah. And like you said, they're taking the Toys Remove material and they're giving it kind of the smeared polish, you know? Mm. It's, it's for a bigger audience. The people are obviously jumping around. So, you know, it's, well, it's apropos, I guess you could say. Yeah. It's a good question. I mean, if you listen to, you know, the material that we do know, uh, the live material that we do have from 93, uh, you can, so this is a little bit of a tangent, but shout out to our Irish listener, uh, Rory, for, for reminding us of this performance. There's a YouTube video out there of Sloan's gig uh, at a music store when, or a, I think it was a record store, when they were in London uh, recording those um, recording those uh, B-sides to the I Am The Cancer 12-inch with Angeli Dutt. And um, they premiere at that, I'm using the word premiere very liberally today, um, but they played Pen Pals at that performance. And it's, you know, in as much as some of the stuff that you hear on the 93 Winnipeg bootleg is a lot more up-tempo than it finally was on Twice Removed. Pen Palace just has this like weird droning slow tone and it doesn't sound at all mm. like the album release. Thanks for coming everybody from Paul Sloan. And um, we're playing tonight at the Camden Underworld. I hope there's as many people there as are here. So, so with, most, it feels as though they were really trying to find out, you know, what's the best way to get the crowd to react to this and what's the most natural tempo to play this song in. But ultimately, Pen Pals, the final song, came out of a jam session when Rondinelli wasn't there uh, after some of the guys had gone to a Rush concert in New York. So they were hearing, you know, whatever, Limelight, and felt inspired to give Pen Pals that twist. Cool. That's great. So Getty. Would they have done that in store where they played Pen Pals on the same trip as they did Lane Blame and Ragdoll? 
Yeah, I'm assuming that was... <clears throat> I, so I think this in-store was sort of July, August, okay. 93, and I believe... So they were in London twice in 93. I think they were in London in March of 93 at the tail end of their European Smear tour, mm. and they went back in the summer. Okay. Um, so it was either in, in March... Uh, I'm, I'm assuming it was more in, in, in July, August. So the assumption must be made that that in-store where they're playing pen pals really slow. And like you said, maybe they're just working at, maybe they're working it out. What does this sound like at this speed? Because the pen pals demo, mm. as we hear it on the Twice Removed Deluxe set, is the upbeat, regular version you would normally hear on the, on the album, and if not, maybe even a little bit faster. So are they just trying it out? Or, or for that audience, are they just kind of having fun and playing something a little more down tempo because because the 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 jump of the song exists like you know like the that all exists there it's just slower you know hmm. um, it really sounds like pen pals had been put at like uh 75 tempo through a tape machine you know <laughs> yeah yeah like they like the guys all just woke up and they're playing it still half asleep or something um but it's an interesting video it's an interesting version of the song it's interesting to hear what they were kind of thinking about at the time and i and i like to kind of speculate again that in this period between smeared and twice removed they hadn't completely landed on exactly what the next one was going to sound like Hmm. i know that i i got i have a feeling that they wanted to go into a more of a timeless direction um so maybe less guitar maybe less distortion the drums a little bit straighter a little more pop song structure um a la matthew sweet and things like that like you said earlier sure um but it's hard to decide exactly when that took place when that transition completely took place so that new york demo like or that bootleg that you mentioned earlier at the end of 93 would be a great example of maybe where they were where their heads were at Mm. um so another important question this has kind of been we were kind of just talking about this but who were they influenced by at the time in 93 early 94 we know you know, like you listen to Hate My Generation, especially the demo version uh, with the S-E-A-N, you know. Right. Um, Stereo Lab is obviously Stereo there. Lab, they would sure. have played with them. Uh, obviously guided by voices, especially in the Andrew material. Um, Andrew in 95, I mean, now this is a little bit later, but I mean, his influences and the, thing, the stuff that he likes is all over the place. I mean, Chris and Patrick are, you know, very, you know, early punk guys. Mm. Um, and and to, to understand where their influences are, are coming from and how that's informing the material. You know, he did that Mission of Burma cover at Edgefest 95, which is sort of just a wild song and kind of uh, just like a real left field sort of like something completely non-Andrew sounding, you know. Mm. Um, And he had obviously, we've spoken in the past on the show about him doing the Motorhead cover in the mid mid to late 90s. Well, and one, one professional care is basically that. Oh, right. it totally is. It totally is. It's and almost I think, like Weenie Beanie by Foo Fighters, you know? <laughs> sure. Yeah, for sure. And I think it fits in my sort of like smeared to lineup, which we'll get to. Oh, yeah. But, um, you know, and Patrick on our episode talked about Ragdoll Laying Blame, which was recorded mm-hmm. uh, in that, what was it, early 93? Yeah, it would have been recorded at the time Mid, that smeared was coming yeah. out in, in, in the U.S. Um, for him, that was the direction that the album was going in, you know? Sure. Um, yeah. So... <clears throat> you know what would have happened if that had happened sure. um and his outings on twice removed like i was saying previous loosens, very much so and loosens worried now like the loosens demo for example worried now are songs that have could have completely existed in the mm. same vein as like sugar tune and 500 up and stuff like mm. they did on smeared yeah. um and like i said earlier they're moving away from the dave grohl bombast and kind of more into the straight yeah. beatles charlie watts um and so on so that's the first question sorry go ahead 
Yeah, no, this is an important point because it kind of also guides the final track list of the hypothetical smear too. So um, I'm assuming when when they put smear two out that geffen says okay chris and patrick are kind of the lead guys we don't want all four guys to share the spotlight because you can't market that um so we want chris especially and to a lesser degree patrick to share the brunt of of the songs that was also a decision made in the cutting of smeared and like andrew isn't singing 500 up you know what i mean and so I got Andrew's material from Twice Removed, and we'll get to the track lists that we kind of put up for ourselves in a few minutes. But yeah. <clears throat> I don't, I don't have Andrew doing any of his Twice Removed stuff on Smear Two. You know that that is Same. basically entirely, <laughs> it's entirely Velvet Underground. That's Velvet yeah. Underground. Those are two Velvet Underground songs. Yeah. People, this guy and Before I Do, sure, um, and sort of like mid era Velvet Underground. So not even like the good beginning stuff that people would have known but sort of the more obscure later stuff that you know who who knows that shit right you know even even jay's stuff which was very beatles-esque and very kind of poppy i've got one track for jay and andrew each on the final cut of smear two as a sign of appeasement um and geffen would not have allowed any more and in and in my world i think i'm trying to i have to look at my list i think i might I have two J songs and I want to say at least one Andrew song for sure. And for me, again, this is from my perspective, it's the band deciding to make a smear too, essentially, mm. um, as opposed to have, feeling the pressure from the label or whatever. So we've got through the first two questions. The third important question is what are we pulling from content wise? And we've kind of touched on this already, but mm. for me largely, and you can kind of you know throw in your two cents as well, Ken, but for me, it's basically the stuff that was on the twice removed deluxe box, which is the stuff that they had demoed. I mean, yeah. we obviously know songs like day would will be mine exist in this period of time sure. you know but there is no sort of audio in in this evidence. context there's yeah. no ed- evidence that it was really being considered so we're looking at the demos and and, and those sort of recordings that were put together pr- prior to going to new jersey with jim rondinelli mm. and that's the stuff that i'm kind of pulling from and sort of saying to myself okay what here really sounds like it would have been an a plus on smear two and yeah. then what does it replace on twice removed you know should we go through the list just briefly of what let's that content do is let's do the let's do the list and let's maybe talk a little bit about what they sound like Okay, cool. So we have the twice removed songs. We don't need to mention all of them. Those right. are that's in the pot of material that was available in in sort of late ninety three, early ninety four, and then we have the, the the outtakes, which are included in the deluxe box set. So oh. guidance counselor, ill placed trust, which had been hanging around for a couple of years. Yep. Autobiography had been done as early as ninety two. Um, Consider it lumped. Sing your little heart out, which was a precursor to take the bench stood up and same old flame right uh the the former having also been around for at least a couple of years yeah every needle has an eye uh girl in case which is uh the later i i don't i always call it girl in case um uh, glad to be here glad to be here for fuck's sake i just i I can't get over that name it's fantastic um (laughs) one professional care Mm. and kinetic and content right those are the sort of tracks that we're that we're and if it's, from. And if it's okay with you, for maybe however you want to go through this, I wouldn't mind actually just touching on the Twice Removed demos. Sure. Because um, I think they are important. Uh, I will say quickly, just to kind of hit um, Pen Pals and Hate My Generation, to me, uh, other than the sort of like uh, the, the sort of the way that SEA and SEID 
is sung on Hate My Generation, the songs are pretty true to how they would eventually sound on Twice Removed, as far as I can tell. Mm -hmm. Um, There's nothing in there in either of the songs that sort of feels like Smeared Era. Um, The the People of the Sky demo, though, that's on the Twice Removed box set is just acoustic Mm -hmm. with distortion. And I had, when listening to it today, I hadn't noticed this before because I was listening to it with really good headphones, but there's like a distorted synth cutting in and out in the background. And Mm -hmm. it kind of gives you that distortion vibe of like what's there to decide or just sort of some of these delay pedals and stuff that were going on and smeared like mm. just just background noise things mm. that are just happening so mm. you know could this song in its you know demo version like just andrew and a guitar it's basically the same song um you know melody lyrics wise would it have existed in a smeared two with this sort of distortion version i don't include it on on mine necessarily but no. um but but the fact that that distorted synth is on there, it's so non twice removed sounding. It's just an interesting. I don't have them seeing the brilliance of people of the sky per se. You know, because Andrew's just out there in his own little. Do you mean you know, them like own... DGC? I, yeah, I don't, I don't, okay. I don't have DGC. Okay. So my my assumption for Smear Two, and this is this is, I think where is our tracklists. Okay. Yeah, my, I think this is where our tracklists are going to be, where they're they're going to be a little bit different. Mm. Is that um, we have a producer coming in who's a little bit more hands on, or Todd Sullivan, you know, wanted to cajole them into into no pun intended appropriate um <laughs> in, into having a bit more of a streamlined feel for right. that particular genre in which they were in in 92 93 so um i i see andrew's sound and andrew himself as not being marketable in that vein you know which certainly wasn't the case in canada when the real twice removed was released uh, people of the sky having been a fan favorite but uh i don't see them taking the demo for people of the sky and saying holy crap this is fantastic yeah. and this is gonna fit right into what we want to do because what would have been the single right i mean they pushed for people of the sky to be a single yeah. what was it going to be i can't remember it was going to be hey, my generation wasn't it like patrick talks about on the a sides win dvd about them originally planning that video shoot exactly mm. as you see it mm. for a different song because because they, they do the coax me video and then there's that alternate version of people of the sky out yeah. there which was shot on the same day yeah. so i feel like the guys are just kind of like you know what we're out here on the road we're on our own we've been kind of sent off <laughs> you know on an iceberg by the label yeah. Yeah. to just kind of fend for ourselves and they're like fuck it we're going with andrew has a single and we're just going to do this we're going to do what we want here you know what i mean yeah. Well, I, for my, you know, for what it's worth, I think I know what the single would have been on Smear 2, um, but we can get to that once we get into our I track have, list. I have that as well. So yeah, I'm excited <laughs> to talk about Actually, a little foreshadowing here. Coax Me, <clears throat> essentially the demo is, as far as I'm concerned, the same song, mm. but with just a straight beat the whole time. The sort of mm. uh, ticket to ride, gung, ka, gung, 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 mm. is not there in the verses. It's just straight up. 4-4 beat the whole time yeah. um, and they'd been, they'd been doing this live as well so if you look at on the like I mentioned the A-Sides Win uh, compilation a minute ago the DVD compendium with that has some footage which I want to say is late 93 this could even be that New York show that you're talking about I have to, I have to pull mm. it out I don't remember what the date is but it's them I want to say opening for Founds of Wayne or something like that sure. and they're playing Coax Me 
in mid to late 93 and it's this version it's this it sort was of judgy by summer of 93 yeah right it's the same song essentially uh but but you know it's it's not screaming driving smeared guitars it's pretty mm. straight it's pretty true to the album except the beat is straight the whole time right. um, and it's a very big beat song you know it's it's not you know, uh, tempered and it's not withdrawn at all it, where, as it appears on twice removed a little more, um, uh, what would be the word? A little more, uh, subtle, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but the, the demo and the version of it live is very, just very straight. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so bells on the demo is again, big drums, you know, not like the, the album at all. Uh, not like the TR album at all. Um, you know, left over. And this is where I'm kind of getting the speculation about, that the that some of these demos and some of this songwriting existed in the smeared style like it was mm. demoed with loud guitars and with loud drums and then basically mm. the loud guitars were deleted or, or re-recorded with something a little more subtle and this is kind of like in that gray area for me yeah. the bells yeah. on drums sound like a big smeared song That's with right. somebody singing kind of <laughs> earnestly over it with sort of like mm. you know um, and then you get the kind of delay at the end of the song that goes into a sort of big heavy like basically if you listen to the last 30 seconds of the bells on demo that's what i imagine the whole song sounding like at some point originally you know mm. um mm. loosens which is basically the same as you hear on the album very dinosaur-y like we've talked about um sounds like it recorded it, honestly the, the the demo version kind of sounds like it was recorded with three bass guitars like that spinal tap song mm. um and, but to me this one the, the loosens the demo and i think a smeared version of loosens would have been maybe a little more upbeat a little more guitar driven whereas the tr version is sort of like just like a twilight you know gleaming like just sort of like a you know 3 a.m on a patio chitter chatter like it's just this mm. really beautiful calm cool song um i do want to take a moment here too i don't know if anywhere else in the discography we get two patrick pentland songs in a row can you think really quick if that exists anywhere else no it doesn't because loosens into worried now and twice removed i think is the only time it is um, so here we go with the double patrick which would make sense on an lp because it's the end of side a beginning of side b sure but uh, in that context but uh, yeah the demo uh, the, the worried now demo would have been on smeared 100 percent. well it exists in commonwealth i'm just gonna interrupt you there for a second oh okay it does okay. exist but we'll take right. commonwealth okay. out of the out of the equation <laughs> of course other than commonwealth where they have their own sides yeah uh when they're doing like the mixtape vibe is that's right yeah but uh you know sugar tune part two is what i would call worried now and in a way mm. you know uh, and we mm. mentioned this on the pretty together uh album review with travis from the elwins um mm. that patrick is using the pick it up and dial it lyrics in the last chorus that's here. Right. Yeah. so you know it's just so fun that these little nuggets exist with this band specifically that you can have material developed at one time and that eventually sees the light of day 10 years later you know mm, like right. and, and also something to mention and if we do play a clip of this song i would love to play like the last 15 seconds of this track the demo of worried now chris and patrick singing pick it up and dial it together at the end of this is that magic super voice that we always talk about the super voices right. i think we pulled that from fabcast and for th- and for for them they contextualize super voice as being Paul and John singing together and not harmonizing, just having That's this right. like super. But for me, I, I love calling super voice, the Patrick and Chris harmonizing voice. Their voices sound so fucking perfect together. And 
and it's well, it a great. It, it has more to do with the timbre and the textures, right, than it yes, does with the oh, actual sure. notes being sung. Oh, it's it's a mixture of the two for sure. But yeah, like their voices just themselves individually sound great, and together are fucking magical. Hmm. And so if you listen to the last 15, 10 to fifteen seconds of this demo, the worried now demo, especially when the music goes away and their voices are still there, it's just like, yeah. oh, there it is. Hmm. You know, like you can't fucking manufacture that, and uh, they have it naturally, and it's amazing. The shame shame demo. Again, album sounds pretty much like this demo. Uh, it would have had a, a a place on Smeared. I'm assuming that this is maybe one of Chris's earlier songs in the process. Um, Probably. For, in, in the, in, for that reason. Mm. I mean, it was um, out live. They were doing it live pretty early on the sort of on the second leg of the Smeared tour. Yeah. Like, I haven't heard a Shame Shame version of this song that exists other than exactly the way That's it's right. demoed. Yeah. You, know? yeah. um, you can't take it and put it into another different mold, per se. Yeah. <laughs> and even it, the song it is what it is the song too uh is very kind of take it in esque you know mm. um in a way uh it's just sure. in the way in this way the song is sort of put together the way it's loud and quiet and so on um right. deeper than beauty i don't even want to touch this one you know what i mean uh no. the the beat on the demo is different kind of it's a little more chaotic sounding um it, musically it could maybe be the two-seater of a smeared two but this the, the lyrics the melody the way it sounds on twice removed deeper than beauty i don't even want to speculate about this song ever sounding different than the version we know and love on twice removed well it didn't so, make my cut for smeared two anyways it's not on mine uh and and obviously for good reason it wouldn't it wouldn't exist on a smeared two no but this song is perfect and yeah i'm glad that exi- it exists the way it does that's right that's right Snowsuit sound um, would have potentially been a smeared twos raspberry, perhaps the demo sure. version. It's sure. a little slower. It's a little more mid tempo. Mm. Uh, maybe a sequel to What's There to Decide. Like if if What's There to Decide ends and then kind of kicks up a notch, it goes yeah. into snowsuit sound. You know, I don't know if they're. Yeah, it's also it's a song. The demo version is a little bit noisier, and it's a song that if you slow it down a notch kind of lends itself to a little bit more noise what's there to decide has the christmas sleigh bells <laughs> well yeah. I, it has sleigh bells which of yeah. course for me always makes me think of christmas sure and and so does wearing a snowsuit being out in the snow living in canada so again there's a bit of a tie in there i don't think that that was intentional or i don't know if they were written about the same thing or jay's whatever, just a festive guy He's a festive guy, as we saw on the uh, Jay Solo show where he was performing Lines You Men in his backyard in the snow, which I thought was amazing. Well, and the music video, again, for Witch's Wand is also set in sort of a barnyard, northern Ontario, Christmas Eve vibe. But that's another episode. Parallel Play we'll get to in 2028. (laughs) And I always think, too, of Witch's Wand when he talks about a cop just told me to freeze. The joke... for me, just in my own head, it's probably not anything to do with reality, is that when Jay is told to freeze by the cop, he's on the side of the highway in freezing cold weather. So it's like a, <laughs> kind of like a, just a sort of silly joke in a way. Anyway, and I, anyway, blah, blah, blah. Before I do, uh, the demo is very similar to how it sounds on Twice Removed. And yeah. I would assume that this song came later in the process, leading up to the recording of the it album. It feels like it was done fairly... And I don't want to, you know, this isn't meant to be insulting, but it feels a little bit half-baked. Sure. Well, Chris is singing the verses here. Mm. You know, the song is credited to Andrew, and he sings Consider It Lumped, which is the demo. Mm. So is Chris singing it kind of 
just to sort of see who sounds better singing it or is it more the direction are they feeling that like chris as the lead singer vibe or are they thinking you know to do this song live it's going to have to be me because andrew's singing this one from the drums is going to be difficult i mean they would later go on like four nights at the palais royale it's andrew singing it at the guitar so again there's another weird one where i don't know where it went from being because there are earlier versions of it out there where chris is just straight singing it yeah like from the front of the stage, like not well, the drums. It, it was part. I think. I think it was part that, and part also just, you know, Andrew wasn't where he would be vocally in '94. Mm, you know, okay. in '94 he still didn't. He hadn't cut his chops per se. I feel as though he really came into being as a vocalist after one chord. Okay. I feel as though his vocals really kind of hit their stride in uh in sort of 98 99 certainly by between the bridges well Um, yeah i mean you hear the ns and he's like a different person but i mean you listen to 400 meters on one chord and like that's a vocal performance and a half so i mean he's doing it he's putting himself out there a little bit more he for sure himself a little bit more he for sure is yeah you know but that's not happening in twice removed yet even if you listen to before i do the real album cut he's not singing with the same confidence and range as he did you know for 400 meters yeah uh getting to the end of the album here i can feel it like deeper than beauty i don't want to live in a world where the album version of this song doesn't exist in this form you know like a smeared sounding second album wouldn't have this song which is another reason why i think it's important to focus on how vital it is that they did kind of change gears and Mm. head toward the way tr ended up sounding with an acoustic only version now this version is just acoustic it's just patrick jennifer pierce is there Mm. would a version of this song in its form here, fit at the tail end of Smear 2 a la Butterfly slash Pinkerton, like uh, where where they finish Pinkerton with just an acoustic song, perhaps? And maybe that's a bit well, of a tell no, it into... wouldn't have. Okay. And, you know, Pinkerton wasn't necessarily seen, um, you know, it's not as though... Pin- Pinkerton has interesting parallels to Twice Removed in so many different ways hmm. um, that, you know, it's an album that's released to few accolades, um, that uh, the real artistic merit of the album was recognized only a few years later, that reviews weren't necessarily great, that Geffen wasn't necessarily pushing it the way that they pushed the debut album. So, um, oh, and by the way, Jim Rondinelli was also an engineer on Pinkerton. So, um, yeah, so what was I getting at? I don't, I don't see, I can feel it, as especially in 94. Like in 96, the musical world had turned and left Weezer with Pinkerton, which was certainly you have a little bit more leeway in terms of what you're able to do as a band, especially yeah. when you're that big. But I don't feel as though I can feel it is something, you know, if you if you have tracks like if you're throwing out tracks like one professional care uh-huh. and you know, we can't forget this is the this is the year, you know, Nirvana is still together and this is still the lighthouse band for for Geffen. I don't see I can feel it existing in that world, per se. Yeah, and for me, I, but looking at back to Smeared, what's there to decide is sort of like the chill out song of the album and it's last. So in that context, mm. I can I, I'm I'm presupposing that a, a version of I can feel it as it is demoed here with just Patrick and Jennifer Purse singing the song with 
acoustic guitar for me could have existed and maybe that's a bit of a peek into my smear two playlist or track list right. rather but um I, I do i do want to finish by saying that it is very important to note that jennifer pierce is here she's also present obviously all over smear sure. uh, and so that's another thing that kind of ties those two records together if nothing else um and and for me at the end of an album you kind of either have the bombast like you go off on on a, in a rocket ship like the end of never hear the end of it oh, yeah. with um uh uh, another way I can do another it. way I could do it, of course, uh, or you kind of end this on the album on a bit of a sort of more somber tone, like with the dreams come true on pretty together or laying so low at the end of double cross. Um, you know, right. So, so in this context, I, I do like the idea of smeared two for me, at least mirroring smeared in that it has a sort of a down, downer, slower tempo, slower vibe, chiller vibe yeah. at the end. Um, but anyway, yeah, so there we go. We got through the album in terms of demos. Well, do you want to go through, do you want to go through the track list? our individual track lists we and sure can. put put those conversations into the context of the track list because i think sure. that we're drawing a lot on the demos and outtakes so we both compiled listeners we both compiled separate smeared two versions without knowing what um what the other person's version would be like and i'm gonna suggest that i i do a quick just run through of my track list and then you do your track list and then we can dive into commonalities and differences so and i did some really rough sequencing so it's not i don't feel as though this would be like the final final sequence of songs on the album um but it, it is what it is and sounds good I'll, I'll remind you listener that my track list makes the assumption as i mentioned that the label had more influence over what songs were being selected for the album that the label also had more influence on who they were pushing more for the album so you're gonna you're gonna see a little bit more of chris and patrick certainly a little bit more of chris and less andrew and jay so i lead off this is an interesting selection my lead off track worried now second track pen pals third track one professional care dive right in uh track four shame shame track five Girl in Case, Track 6, D is for Driver or Kinetic and Content, uh, Track 7, Sing Your Little Heart Out slash Take the Bench, Track 8, Continuing the Octavane, Autobiography, Track 9, Snowsuit Sound, Track 10, Bells On, Track 11, Ill Place Trust, and the final track on the album is Stood Up. Those are my 12 tracks. Wow. <laughs> Definitely some similarities there between our two, I got to say. That's kind of funny. That's good. So hit us. <clears throat> yeah. So, I mean, for me, I took the Underwhelmed template. Uh, and this is something that I've always been fascinated about for years and years and years. Like the bands that I've been in or the albums that I like, the sequencing. It's so important. And, you know, what, what, and this is super important too for anybody who's ever made a mixtape for anybody. And then the art of making a mixtape. <clears throat> you know, uh, Rob Gordon talks about this in High Fidelity. Um, you know, what do you start off with? What is the second song? Da 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 da. And there are almost like certain rules that you need to abide by. So in, the, in my version of Smeared 2, um, and I did technically rename the album although for the for the most part i'll, I'll refer to it as smear two for just a minute here <clears throat> but the sequencing is so important um as far as i'm concerned so i mirrored the sequencing of smeared so i i said okay we have you know underwhelmed up tempo up mid-tempo single as the first song here for my smear two i have pen pals first uh, if okay. the demo version um 
you know, you listen to the drums of this demo version and it sort of has that sort of underwhelmed, like kind of all over the place drums going on mm. with the sort of simplified pen pals guitar and stuff over top of it. So another, another example of, you know, did an early pen pals demo include like just sort of bigger guitars or something? Did it have that smeared sound? I don't know. Right. Now for me, I could kind of swap out pen pals with coax me here as well. Okay. So you do have Coax Me on the album. Yeah, so I have Coax Me as well. Okay. Uh, it, it comes a little later, but I was going to say, I had a real hard time deciding what should come first. Because for me, did you pick a first single from your record, by the way? I did. I did. Do you want to get into that And what now? was that? Let's just chat about that real quick, if you don't mind. Yeah, my first single is Pen Pals. Okay, cool. My, and it's not expected to be the biggest single, but my, my lead-off <clears throat> single on the album to get people interested is pen pals i know that that's not the way that record companies work maybe before we go into details what's your first single my first single is coax me although for me it comes it's number four on the record as it is on uh twice removed Uh, but my thought was i can't place if i'm gonna have pen pals on here and i want it on here i could not figure out a way to have it anywhere else on the album in terms of sequencing than first it just makes sense first. You know what oh, I mean? It's, it's, it's such know, a great first song. Sorry, go ahead. I have that. I have Worried Now almost segueing into Pen Pals. And okay. I feel as though, so for me, Worried Now was the perfect lead off because of that drum hit at the very beginning. Right. Yeah. No, like that's you start a, the, yeah. You start the album. <laughs> yeah. Right. And then if you kind of picture Worried Now, um, if you remove that last little bit where it's just the extended mm-hmm. vocals. Yeah. Uh, you know, Patrick saying worried now. And if you add, if you continue the guitar riff into the end, um, then uh, then you can almost segue it directly into Pen Pals. That was sort of my... Right. I see. Okay. That works. That works. I mean, for me, it was like on Smear, the, the, the big single is the first song. So it's underwhelmed. <clears throat> and so on my version, I was really pushing to have Coax Me be the first song on the record because it's the big single in my in my you know, alternate universe. Hmm. But when I looked at the record, I couldn't put Pen Pals fourth. I couldn't put it anywhere other than first. And for me, it, it's, it's a neck and neck discussion between Pen Pals and Coax Me being the first single. And if mm. DGC was sort of like the fifth person in the room sort of decider, like if I was mm. some label guy in 94 and I heard Pen Pals and Coax Me, I love Pen Pals to fucking death. Right. But I would say Coax Me is your single. You know, like right. that's the one, that's the song. Right. Um, and anyway, so yeah, so I've got Pen Pals first, not to drone on and please interrupt me. Um, <laughs> I have Same Old Flame second, which is okay. the sort of down-tempo burner similar to Raspberry. Um, I am the cancer upbeat soft voice fuzz fest is third on smeared. So it's sort of, uh, mirrored on smeared two by a hate me generation, which is the demo version. Hmm. Um, fourth song is coax me. And my version of coax me is the straight beat, big beat version of coax me with maybe more guitars. It's the first single. Um, it maybe doesn't have the bombast all over the placeness of underwhelmed, but it's, you know, for 1994, it's a big straight beat, big kind of like a uh, single, like I'm trying to think of an ex- another, uh, single in that vein, but uh, like maybe something from the blue album or whatever. But, um, yeah. The fifth song for me is Snowsuit Sound, which is sort of mirroring Take It In um, on Smeared. It's that sort of mid-tempo, you know, burner, the demo version of Snowsuit Sound. Um, The sixth song for me is Loosens, which is the the dinosaur-y demo version. So Mm. very distorted, 
same song so so it's not the sort of like chill out vibe version of, of twice, twice removed it's the very dinosaur sounding demo version songs right back to back again here with worried now next and this is the pick it up and dial it version of worried now right. uh, next it's three patrick's in a row <laughs> girl in case and this is and by the way worried now is is sort of mirroring marcus said that sort right. of upbeat soft voice fuzz fest that's what's going on there um mirroring sugar tune is patrick's sugar tune for smear two which is girl in case sure uh, and i really think girl in case could have been a single as well i mean that for me that was, that it, was neck and neck with coax me that is my second single as well yeah and it kind of happens mid-album like 500 up does on smear yeah. Yeah. um and it's 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 got patrick as the lead vocalists and he is the one of the lead vocalists on 500 up so they mm. mirror in that way um left of center on smeared is mirrored by bells on Mm-hmm. here um i had thought about doing shame shame here but i just sort of i love that bells on demo and sort of i i leaned in that direction um <clears throat> so basically like a mid-tempo chill zone that goes crazy like left to center um sing your little heart out or take the bench is mm-hmm. uh third last year for me which is sort of mirroring lemon zinger which is an upbeat fuzz fest j song right. um so it's mirrored here take your take the bench demo uh second to last is one professional care which mirrors two seater they are both sort of upbeat fuzz fest punky you know like um and it takes the place of before i do as well so it's it's an andrew Mm. song second to the end so it's similar in that way as well right and like what's there to decide is sort of an outlier in smeared i finish smeared two with i can feel it and it's an acoustic only version of patrick and jenny pierce just singing by themselves for the time it sort of also mirrors the kind of pinkerton where you kind of close a loud album on a slower softer note note. um and i renamed the album i hate my generation i thought i thought that that would be kind of a fun title it's a it's a song title uh it's very it's a very epic title you know like Mm. twice removed is great too i love that and again like i wouldn't change it for the world but this version of the album uh just sort of a very epic classic title that you'd see on everything and it's it's almost like you know those old albums by the beatles and the rolling stones and stuff where the just the title of the album alone like let it bleed or whatever Mm. or let it be or something Mm. is like just you just see it written on the spray painted on the side of a building somewhere it's just like you know just this this phrase out there like like smith's the queen is dead or something like that sure you don't see pen pals sprayed on the side of a building right but i hate my generation is just such a classic universal term it's kind of funny Mm. um anyway so i renamed the album i hate my generation and that's my track list cool that's fantastic just again as a note i did not give the album a name but we'll just call it uh smear <laughs> two on my on my on my smear front. two like, electric boogaloo that's right but i like your i like your uh reasoning with i hate my generation so we have a lot of overlap as you mentioned <laughs> yeah totally, i think man. your your list is certainly a little bit more mellow than mine in, in places sure um you know you do have loosens in there you have i can feel it in there i made the and you have coaxed me in there yeah. which i find interesting my thought was that coax me loosens and i can feel it it would just be too difficult to bring them into the same tempo and to bring them into the same feeling as the rest of the album to give that a cohesive sound right and i was certainly going for that whole like the debut of foo fighters album mm. which is basically just a bunch of demos of of 
Grohl stuff from the time when he wasn't allowed to do his own stuff in Nirvana. You know, I was going for that kind of flair in terms of, or even even Blue Album or Pinkerton. This is kind of the sound that we're looking for. There might be a few stylistic uh, deviations here and there, but on the whole, you know, it's pretty much the same, which doesn't necessarily make for a more exciting album, but might make for a more marketable album right. if you're going for more of a shallow audience. But maybe we can touch on our commonalities, you know. Sure. Um, and then we can talk about the differences afterwards. But we can start with Worried Now. Yep. And I I personally use the album version of Worried Now. I feel as though it's a little bit uh, meatier. It's a little, a little bit more better rounded off. I'm not a huge fan of the Pick It Up and Dial It outro, although I like the novelty of that. And I feel as though I'm, <laughs> you know, I'm very thankful for it spawning um, the pretty together Pick It Up and Dial It. But, you know, li- like I mentioned hitting listeners with that drum fill yes at the very offset of the album would have just been such a cool hook sure uh for a smear too it definitely mirrors smear for sure it's it's that sort of familiar sound familiar feeling now yeah. i don't know what do you know what's the first chord in worried now it's certainly is it minor perhaps i don't know if maybe that was the thing that maybe kept me kept it from being the first song on the record i just it sets an interesting mood too because mm. you know twice removed was again a tumultuous point in um the career of the band as we all know that yeah. period in 93 and 94 and that the song worried now encapsulates that for patrick in so many different ways and it's you know this the the simple fact that you have the word now in the title yeah makes an interesting lead off track as well like this is where yeah. we're at now yeah no it's a good point and in and i'm trying to think now as you're saying that about other albums that would have ended begun on a minor key like i know the ns at the beginning of between the bridges is it's an interesting note to start an album on you know what i mean like for me well the intro yeah. to dns is actually major and then it dives into the minor for the first sorry you're, you're right you're right you're right you're right yeah yeah you're right <laughs> so it's an interesting thing like it definitely would have been i think for anybody hearing the album and hearing right now first it's definitely like a huh you know like that's interesting that's different you know mm. i mean the drums are familiar but kind of going into that minor verse and it's such a catchy song too i mean like so good call mm. in that regard like that chorus is amazing you know and, and and easily just as catchy as underwhelmed you know if you're gonna mirror having like a big single at the top i think you can take you can take worry now and make it a little bit more affirmative and that mm. was one of the thoughts that i had as well in terms of it leading into pen pals mm-hmm. you don't have that sort of dissolving vocal at the end <laughs> right, which is a bit right. de- depressive but you know you can you can have you can have that final guitar chord and either it's the first guitar chord of pen pals it's sort of melded with the first guitar chord of pen pals i I don't think it is i don't think they're both a b though but whatever like it could be more or less a segue into pen pals and we both have pen pals at the beginning of the album like i'm starting the album with it for you as a second song Mm. Um, and again for me like this would be more in line with the version that we hear on twice removed but just sort of a more driven like maybe the guitars are a little more driving you know a little a little more distorted or something like that um but in terms of song structure and the way it sounds pretty much the same thing um like you like you hear those drums even from the sessions with Jim, John, Jim Rondinelli. Uh, and, and to me, like the, like it has, it's as if that song existed in a smeared style and they just turned the distortion off. You know what I mean? Um, sure. Anyway. <laughs> I don't have it. I don't have it sounding very different than it did on, on twice removed either. Sure. I feel as though, you know, depending on how they mastered this thing at the end, 
maybe they would have made some tweaks, but I feel as though worry now in pen pals as they are on twice removed would have been kind of they would have resided in in, in a smear two world very well. To to move on to our next similarity, we both have one professional care on the album. Right. That's the first track that kind of stands out in terms of what the hell is this? You know. Right. For me, it's the weirder, punkier song. Uh, and for me, it mirrors two seater. That's why it's second from the end. Um, you have it third, which is, I yeah. guess, in this case, replacing people of the sky. So you're replacing one mm. Andrew song with another. That's right. Yeah. And that, I, again, this is, I, I'm not putting this out as a final sequencing. I feel as though this belongs a little bit earlier in the album. Like this isn't the strongest song on the, on the album mm-hmm. at all. It's more of a tempo driver it's more of like a mood mood shifter yeah i don't see them having this you know in the last three or four songs i really only put it in the last couple songs because it mirrors smeared Mm. uh and it puts andrew in the second to last place as he is with before I do on twice removed. And for me too, like one professional care, like, I mean, obviously I'm, I'm coming at this from the, from the version of history where, where Sloan are deciding to make a twice removed or a smeared part two rather, and not being pushed into it. But again, like if, if, if they're wanting to make a, a pop album at the end of the day, that mm-hmm. song th- as the third song in might be maybe a bit of a turnoff. I don't know. Like mm-hmm. my, my, my track list is very much like, Hey, check us out. We write amazing songs. Look at all the amazing songs we have, you know? Right. Um, and in the album for me is completely front loaded with like everything that's amazing. And okay. so my, my second song is same old flame. This is obviously the, the down tempo burner demo version, um, which was sort of the direction that Patrick wanted to go in. So in this version of history, he, he does go in that direction here mm. and it sort of mirrors raspberry, which is sort of that slower mid tempo second song, you know? Mm. Um, so, so same old flame, incredible chorus, like great, great song. It's a super catchy song, but like smeared it, it follows, Follows up that first upbeat song with something a little more tempered. Yeah, I don't have Seymour Flame on at all. Um, uh, you know, I feel as though that was wasn't really fleshed out. The final same old flame that was done as the uh seven inch version in mm-hmm. 95 yeah uh and it sounds a little bit different than the the b-side version in 96 the octa version yeah um i feel as though that's more of the the way in which they wanted to take same old flame for sure and it and that certainly wouldn't have wouldn't have fit into the mold oh no of a smear too yeah, and I mean, and and again, I, it, it's it's important to say, like, I am so glad that stood up in Same Old Flame exist as they did in 1995, because again, that mm. those two songs are pop perfection, uh, and and the fact that that single exists as a double A side is just like, yeah, it's incredible. Well, and we we dwelled upon this uh, in a different episode, but think about it, like, if the band ha- had broken up in 95, 94, 95, Same Old Flame would have been the last song that they released. Yeah, you know, it's, very, it's a very it's a very fitting last song for a band to release it's kind of very insecure and very um the lyrical content isn't necessarily the most optimistic mm-hmm. right even it's though musically it might sound a little bit more a little bit more upbeat 
and you look at the straight up Samuel Flame, even the artwork, it's like black and white. And I know this is maybe not they were, what they were going after. Maybe they were going after for an aesthetic, maybe more like early punk singles. But the mm. fact that it's in black and white kind of gives it that sort of like Sloan, rest in peace. You know what I mean? Like, right. They're done, you know? Um, anyway, so I have Hate My Generation in the third spot. And yeah, didn't, you didn't don't have cut. it on. Yeah, it's no. not on there. Yep, didn't okay. Cool. Um, so our, our next commonality, I guess, is, is Shame Shame, right? Mm. Uh, I don't have Shame Shame on there. I, I, oh, I had shit, considered sorry. it. Yeah, it's okay. I'd considered it in the fourth to last spot, taking the sort of left of center mm. space, but I decided and, and kind of leaned in towards Belzon. Okay, so our next our next commonality would then be our single girls in case uh, girls in case girl in case girls on film. <laughs> Chris is super excited to hear that reference. Um, yeah, girl in case. So again, for me, it's mirroring smeared in the sugar tune slot of of mm. track of track eight. Mm. Um, and in being a single, I mean, again on smeared like sugar tune could have been a single for sure. I remember when I first heard that record, I would have been hearing it in like ninety six, ninety seven, so a few years mm. removed. Um, but that's another song that when you first hear it, like, good. Like, if the songs previous to it didn't hook you, that song's amazing. You know what I mean? The thing, I, the thing about Girl in Case, though, is I would take out that super irritating cowbell from the chorus. I just okay. can't deal with that cowbell. And it's 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 up at, like, at like minus 6 dBs. It's super, super intense in the mix. And I don't know exactly what's happening in the chorus of the Girl in Case demo. I remember seeing a Fleetwood Mac rumors behind the music episode from like mm. the mid to late 90s. I don't know when it was produced, but I saw it in the mid 90s. And they're talking about secondhand news, I want to say. <clears throat> and there's a there's a clip of Mick Fleetwood or somebody talking about the production. And actually, you know what? I'm trying to remember if it's secondhand news or one of the other songs on the, on the rumors album, but the percussion on the song is somebody playing like an open hi-hat, just like dig it, dig it, like 16th notes, like dig it, 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 where you would normally have like a tambourine sound or a shaker sound. And they do that on the, um, on the Fleetwood Mac album. And when I hear the girl in case demo, they're doing that there. So I don't know what came first, the chicken or the egg. Did they just put that on there or did they see, or they, did they hear that Fleetwood Mac album or maybe even that they saw that episode episode of behind the music and they were like let's do that because it's as soon as i listen, hear it yeah. yeah as soon as i hear that percussion and the girl in case uh chorus i'm just like oh god that fucking behind the music episode of fleetwood mac anyway whatever It sounds to me like a cowbell in the demo. Is the cowbell like on quarter notes? Like, ga, ga, no, ga, 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 Oh, okay. To me, that sounds like it's an open hi-hat, but uh, okay. I suppose it could be cowbell. It might just be the fidelity of the recording. Yeah, who knows? Maybe okay. we're both right. Maybe one of us is wrong. Maybe, uh, who knows? We're, who who knows? Man. <laughs> but uh, but anyway, it, it's important to note here uh, that the girl in case for me would have been a second single perhaps. Um, and maybe even a first single. Um, let me just think. I mean, like you could even, again, I could, I could substitute girl in case for pen pals as the first song even, you know? Um, cause it's just such a killer chorus, you know? Yeah. Um, 
but then again, if I'm going to include pen pals, where the hell am I going to put it? I can't put mm. it anywhere other than first. So, but anyway, sure. it, it's, it's another great sort of mid album reminder of like, Hey, we're the perfect band. We're amazing. We're the best band ever. Like yeah. sugar tune is on smear. Like by the time you get to the second half of most albums in the early nineties, you're looking at some pretty sorrowful shit. Like if you're getting to the second half of bad motor finger, like yeah. you're skip, you're hitting the skip button every two seconds, man. Um, well, y- yeah and the interesting thing about girl in case i wouldn't have had it as the lead lead off single per se because for me it's too much in the direction of where the band would be going and it was not not rooted enough in where the band was so i would have them do pen pals as the lead off single right um because that's very much still kind of in well I'm I'm contradicting what I was saying earlier because I said that Pen Pals has more in common with Spin Our Wheels than it does with Lame Blame, but I still feel as though Pen Pals like it resides musically in that in that ninety two, ninety three, ninety four world. Yeah. Um, whereas Girl in Case, as it was later released in ninety eight, right? Yeah. And it it was it's super poppy. Mm-hmm. So if you go from and Pen Pals is still kind of like oh you know obscure indie rock lyrical content, yeah. whereas Girl in Case could be on you know it could be on top 40 radio pretty much yeah um you know so that's why i have that transition from you take the first single to appease the existing fan base and then to win new fans you get girl and case out as a hopeful chart candidate and another one and i agree with you and, and again you know girl and case when it came out as glad to be here i think it was on a much music like edge fest compilation or something right, in 99 yeah. i want to say mm-hmm. and it was recorded for navy blues i believe mm-hmm. i don't know if it was afterwards yeah yeah um but um yeah and it's in 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 it exists in it, it, the version that came out in the late nineties exists perfectly with what was going on with them at the time. Totally. Sure. sure. Um, it's a great representation on a compilation of what they sound like. So yeah. um, the other song that we kind of nailed pretty close, I've got bells on at nine. You've got bells on at 10. That's right. Is yours the TR version or is it the demo version? I have the twice removed version. I didn't make any okay. notes that I, I was using the outtakes or the, the okay. demo version. And for me, bells on goes nicely into sing your little heart out, which is take the bench. It's a double Chris attack. And, um, yeah, I just yeah, like both have that too. Yeah. Like I like, um, for me, lemon zinger is the smeared sort of equivalent of sing your little heart out, just sort of like an upbeat fuzz fest. Like I was saying earlier, mm-hmm. um, so the, the sing your heart out, uh, sing your little heart out demo for me, remind, and this is pure coincidence because they didn't exist at the same time, but reminds me totally of that first Foo Fighters album. Hmm. Okay. Sure. It. I feel as though that tempo and that lyrical content and the chord progression could like, been, like in like a big me kind of way. It's this. It's sort of like this is a call. Okay. In many okay. ways, I feel sure. as though they could have like if you think about this is a call and sing your little heart out as a yeah. demo. S- similar tempo, similar vocal range. Um, I'm not sure what the chords are on um, on either of them to be frank. <clears throat> right. But uh, I feel as though it's very much in that sort of like bubblegum grunge mold like you played those notes a year ago but nobody ever seems to mind you're so sweet upon request from her and I, and I don't want to like piss on any Foo Fighters fans here. Like we're talking about a parallel between these two guys for a second. And I liked the first two Foo Fighter albums at the time, but mm. bruh, if for me, like, I mean, I can go back and be like nostalgic about it, but I mean, these albums sound fucking timeless and those don't. Mm. 
to me. Um, sure. They definitely sound trapped in time. That's uh, right. Whereas, whereas this material from these guys is just fucking timeless, you know. And and mm. I don't know if I, I mean I, I would attribute that obviously to the songwriting quality, the ability, um, but also mm. the way that, the way that they did take TR in the end. Um, it's just like a style of music that you can listen to twice removed today. Anybody, you can put a new edit on as a new record and somebody be like, Oh, awesome. Like it just doesn't, mm. they wouldn't go like, Oh, what the fuck year was that recorded? You know, I feel as though the demo for sing your little heart out is certainly a little bit more in, in the early nineties kind of, like I said, I, I call it bubblegum grunge because it's sure. sort of that like almost like ever clear type sure. quality, okay. you know, skater rock. Um, <laughs> Which when I think of when I think of Chris, I think of Skater Rock, like especially '94. I don't know about that. All right, what's our next? Uh, what's our next commonality? We, I think that's it, eh? Yeah, that's about it. I want to say um, I didn't include Ill Place Trust just because for me, the song exists in the time, but even like a, a, a professionally recorded version of the one that we know, like mm. it's got that chorus, like the, Oh, I know, man. And nah, nah, nah. and it's a different chorus from the version that we would eventually hear in 2006. Um, mm. It has some of the telltale signs of music at the time and perhaps some of the changes, but the sort of like verses that are like, you know, like the, the sort of the shaker mm. and all that stuff. Mm. Just to me, kind of, I couldn't figure out a way to fit it on smeared too. It just I, seemed, I like, it. to me, the song is just not developed enough. You know what I mean? Yeah, I have it as the Vermonstrous, more in, in the Vermonstrous vein. Okay, okay, okay. Because if you listen to Vermonstrous from front to back, it fits yeah. perfectly into the set list. Okay, fair enough. Yep. So okay. I have it. I have them doing. I have them doing Ill Place Trust in more of a Vermonstrous style, possibly using some of the production cues from um, from the outtakes version. But I feel as though that if they would have taken that and if they would have let it gestate a little bit more that uh, it could have been worthy of smeared too and i think it's a great pre last like a, a pen penultimate song mm-hmm. for this album um and i you know my my finisher and we can start to get into our our differences now in sure. our track lists my finisher is stood up again just lyrically and in terms of the musical idea the the songwriting idea i feel as though it's a great note to leave an album off on sure right it's like what do i do now my friends aren't going to come and see me i'm (laughs) kind of standing here alone right so we i I lead off with worried now and i end with stood up which aren't necessarily the most kind of testosterone laden tracks so (laughs) again moving more in the direction of what weezer would end up doing uh and rivers cuomo being famous for introducing that kind of what do you call it he's not necessarily the most confident male protagonist in music you know what I mean? <laughs> okay, getting, sure. You know, I, sort of the, the kind of anti-hero lead singer. Yeah, I'm not going to say emo because emo is not sure. a word, but adding right, right. that you know that degree of male vulner- vulnerability into sure. um, mainstream rock, which oh. you know hadn't really existed. Well, it, uh, to a certain extent in grunge, but you know in the 80s certainly didn't exist. Right. And so we, you know, we don't we don't see eye to eye on stood up. We also don't have. So I also have um, D is for driver. Right. slash kinetic and content um and, which i would certainly add a lot more distortion to mm-hmm. um but i feel as though it lends itself to adding more distortion cool now so your version on is is your version d is for driver i like the somewhat more down tempo nature of kinetic and content versus mm-hmm. d is for driver it's certainly less poppy than than the D is for driver B side right. from yeah. twice removed. So it's going to be somewhere in between there with a lot more distortion. 
Uh, I like the guitar work that they're doing on Kinetic and Content, which is yeah. a little bit more up the neck. The voicings are awesome. Like it yeah. to me sounds similar-ish to before I do. Like I feel like Andrew's kind of hand is in the same place. Sure. So it has a little bit in common also with songs like Worry Now. A good example of this is actually that Just One Shot demo, which was also um, predecessor to uh, The Day Will Be Mine. Right. But I like, you know, I like Chris's, his moody vocals on Kinetic and Content. They're certainly a little bit more interesting from from a bit more of a darker grunge perspective than, uh, than what we do have on the final ideas for Driver. Okay, cool. So let's talk about you know, the demos that exist on the Twice Removed Deluxe box set that we didn't pick, uh, that neither of us chose. Mm. Guidance Counselor, um, for me, you know, just great jangly pop song, kind of in the same vein as Laying Blame a little bit, mm. you know? Mm. I don't know if it was perhaps written around the same time. For me, I just... It's, it's older, yeah. yeah, great song, but just the other songs that were available just for me felt better together. Yeah, um, So I, I, I skipped over that one. Consider it Lumped. Was that on yours as well? No, it was out there. Okay, so yeah, I, I didn't chose to choose that one, but another song that I can't imagine being given the smear treatment. Like I just, no, it, it, it exists as the Before I Do demo. It's so, right. it's such an Andrew creation. It's so yeah. unique and cool sounding. Yeah. Every Needle Has an Eye, similar to Guidance Counselor, like I said. Uh, it, the demo feels like Smeared has been abandoned by the time he's written this. Like right. he's not even Chris, I should say a pronouns pal is not even remotely considering the way, I mean, he's completely removed. He's twice removed from that sort of style of writing and everything. He's a completely different writer mm-hmm. um, and a more mature writer in a way. Like I love every needle has an eye and it, and I guess I love the wordplay, like the lyric, like pull out the lyric sheet to this one. It's just, it's fucking great. Sure. Um, and musically, it's very similar to the Twice Removed stuff. And it's just sort of that straight 4-4 beat, yeah. um, the cool guitar lick and everything. But again, just considering the other material, um, you know, I we both omitted it. It might have been um, a B-side. I think that they, they might have, they might have um, managed to take a couple of these tracks gussy sure. them up and add them to you know the b-sides of whatever singles they're going to be releasing yeah uh, but it's a great song it's one of the more fleshed out demos in terms of like a complete thought you know that's right and and that, and that kind of is it in terms of the demos and stuff that are available on the deluxe set so a couple of things that we need to kind of touch on here what would have happened in this theoretical world where this hmm smeared two comes out would dgc for example have gotten behind it um or like you said earlier were they kind of like with the take it in single were they already kind of souring on these guys and sort of the 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 last straw was getting a record that sounds nothing like the previous one well yeah i feel as though i feel as though if they're putting themselves out there if dgc is 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 being a little bit more receptive to the band um giving them a budget and and then involving themselves more with the actual production of the album recording and production then i feel as though they're also going to be involving themselves a little bit more with the release yeah so you know which is a risk because you're putting a little bit more budget out there um and if it doesn't pan out then you know who knows what would have happened i think there's speculation because were they on a five record deal with dgc yeah i don't know (laughs) i think it's it's mentioned in that cbc uh thing right um with Hal from, Harbor. Yeah, from like 93. They mentioned it. You're probably right at five. 
anyways, they're on a multi-record deal with, with DGC. So, you know, they might have just said, okay, well, you know, people out there need a few albums from Sloan to warm up to the band. And mm. maybe the, like the first album is their kind of embryonic thing. The second album is, is revving up and maybe, you know, with their third or fourth album, they'll hit the big time. So it might be that DGC says, you know, just wait on it guys, whatever. Um, but mm. I still feel as though if you're putting money into the, you know, money and attention and time into the production of the album, that you're expecting that money and attention and time to return in the form of revenue with mm. sales so you're gonna to have to promote it as well and that's not what they did for twice removed i mean they neither put attention into the into what the band was doing at, at waterfront yeah nor did they put attention into 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 the promotion of the album afterwards they basically just said you know do whatever you want out of sight out of mind well i, I can tell you how a label how most labels work um, and especially majors or, or, or labels, mm. especially like bigger indies, like sub pop, yeah. maybe not so, so much sub pop, but labels that put out like popular music, mm. they're basically kind of throwing everything they can at the wall. They're like, they're betting on not necessarily a sure thing, but Sloan being given the sort of attention that they had in 92 and so on and being signed in the first place, they obviously were content to agree that they're great and they expect big things from them but i don't think i can't see dgc being like take your time guys like we'll get there at some point you know like the uh, steve miller career or something it's it's more like we want to hit album every album Hmm. and if you don't give it to us then you know your days are numbered kind of thing like labels work you know for the most part where they've got one or two bigger artists that kind of pay the bills for the rest of the year That's right. yeah. and then they're investing they're kind of putting they're basically going to vegas and putting down on the crap table these other albums that might hit with an audience and if they do great if they don't then oh well you know hmm. and so with the relationship as it was with dgc i feel like they gave them a decent budget to make the record but there was definitely an expectation that they were going to deliver. And I think when, when they signed them based on their popularity and the sound that they had, that was very of the time, um, like it's been said a million times, they were just kind of put off by how it sounded. And they, and and that's such a crazy thing. They wanted them to redo it. Hmm. You know what I mean? So, I mean, they were at least invested enough to say like, re-record this, you know? And, and the guys have had just this horrible experience with this guy. Uh, you know, they're making music maybe that's more in, in the vein that they, in the direction that they want to go in, but you know, but it was also new management in, in LA. That was the thing as well as like the whole promotion squad had changed from smeared to twice removed. So Todd Sullivan stayed the same and he was like, certainly in, in on the side of the band mm-hmm. as that's his job, you know, Yeah, totally. but, um, the whole production squad changed in like mid 93, which is why those those singles those latter day singles from smeared you know didn't amount to anything and why they also felt left alone on that smeared tour you know there's no like they they mentioned also having wanted to tour tour canada but the new promotion team basically said i forget which band it was but oh no well we already have a geffen band tour in canada right now so you can so they ended up driving all the way across the country for no reason just to get to some west coast stage shows you know like Jesus. so at, i you know i think that you have this changing of the guards in geffen hmm. where you know you they did kind of forget about the band and of course you expect at the end of the day that an album is going to make revenue for you yeah but you know you can't expect 
that to come if you don't invest yourself as well. If if you if you already have artistic expectations, if you don't invest in those and make sure that they're promoted properly afterwards, how can you expect a band to, to kind of go out and make revenue by itself? Which you is then up, what happened with Twice Removed. And you brought up a good point a second ago, and Andrew mentioned this on his episode, where you know, talking about Todd Sullivan and the shifting landscape of not only TGC as a label, but the record industry in the mid nineties, they're putting this record out amid that, you know, so any mm. opportunity that DGC has to say, cut the fat, you know, is anybody mm. not playing ball, you know, they're just not going to invest in them. They're happy to have Sloan tied up in a, in a, in a, in a record deal. You yeah. know, and you mentioned the five album deal earlier. And if it was five, it would have been less about like, we want to really, you know, invest in a career for these guys. It was more like we're tying them down with five, mm. like you're making five for us basically. Right. You know? yeah. Um, yeah. And so, you know, going back to what I was saying earlier with the, with the way that the industry was at the time, you know, I think DGC were more than happy to look at Sloan. I mean, they would, they would have had fans at the label, but, oh, you're not playing ball. Okay, great. Well, then we just don't have to invest any money in you and you'll, we'll just see what happens. Cause which yeah. gets into my, which gets into my final point of this topic, which is what, ha- what was the relationship like with uh, Sloan and DGC going into the mid to late nineties? Mm-hmm. Um, which is something I didn't know about until the uh, murder records discography uh, account on Instagram started up uh, last year and we got some tidbits about what happened, you know, like 95, 96. So I'll, sure. I'll, I want to broach that subject, but I want to make sure we tie up in all the loose ends and kind of put a button on things here before proceeding. Yeah, well, I think it, it, going back to the track lists, I think it's interesting to see that, you know, we kind of stayed true to the preconditions that we use to assume how Smear 2 would sound. Hmm. Um, and I think it's interesting to com- compare and contrast our track lists because yours is very much in the direction of, okay, the band has a little bit more artistic control in terms of the, in terms of what songs they're putting out there, um, you know, based on their taste and influence at the time. My, yeah. pre- my preconception was DGC is coming out there with a heavy hand and saying, you guys have some great material, but we like this more than this, right. um, which ends up resulting in two completely different sounding albums. So we'll get the track lists um, put up somewhere on our we'll Instagram. Have some, we'll have some whatever. kind of graphic for people to kind of follow along. And I do think it's kind of cu- cute that we both kept it to 12 songs, you know, like... Well, it has uh, to be 12 songs. Is there another yeah. album format in 1994? Well, no, and it's and it's important to note too. I mean, we're talking about the age of tactile records. I mean, it's not like DGC is going to put out a second, like a double second album by these guys. You know, like it's, it's not as though they could have had 13, 14, 15 tracks of any melancholy sort of and infinite smeardness <laughs> exactly that they're not doing that for these guys and you know you have a finite finite amount of space on a vinyl record and on a cd so you know you're, you're right 12 songs is sort of the standard for this period yeah um and i guess a little bit now too for like a pop album but um but less than less so these days because people aren't making traditional albums no. and or buying them or whatever but um, that's right yeah uh any hoozle and i gotta just say that as, a, as this is a complete aside but like i'm such i hate 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 some new ba- band puts out an album or a band puts out a new album and it's like a double album and it doesn't need to be mm. like commonwealth is great and never hear the end of it are great in that there is an abundance of song abundance of songs and commonwealth makes sense because you've got a guy per side right but like you know like oh the new album from blah 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 and it's a double 180 gram vinyl right off you know right i don't want to name any names on the halifax music scene but (laughs) does it does it uh rhyme with mole blasket (laughs) next topic anyway um so yeah to kind of get to back to what i was just saying a second ago about the relationship with dgc i didn't know this fuck this is crazy and we will have to 
put this image up on our Instagram or our social media, whatever, because mm-hmm. this was posted in the Murder Records discography stories, and I thankfully got a, a, a shot of it, because in the comments of the original One Chord release, Chris and Jay sort of talked about that essentially, okay, so basically talking about the the, the sort of setup for One Chord to another the band were technically, as Chris mentioned in the comments, they were technically never dropped by Geffen. Okay, The band was quote-unquote breaking up Mm. and they were allowed to leave the label when they asked to leave. Mm. Right, So they were cool. Uh, The the band and the label were kind of cool and they were kind of cool to give DGC first dibs on one chord after they recorded it, you know, the band kind of come back together and they're like, well, we'll put out a posthumous release, you know, to maybe buttress our murder records label or whatever but in in terms of the states and perhaps in canada too they gave a for first dibs first option to dgc who they were still technically under contract to right um and so then they decided like you know what's the best course of action here do we let dgc put it out do we potentially have a repeat of twice removed or do we bet on ourselves do we go full on into business for ourselves? Hmm. Um, you know, so that was kind of, I think, the question at the time. And so there are these um, preview versions of one chord to another on CD that have the DGC logo on them, which is mind blowing. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we'll have to post those photos. It's so weird. It's just like something you don't, your brain just melts. It's something yeah. you don't, two things that just don't belong together, yeah. DGC and one chord to another. So it's yeah. bizarre seeing those images. Well, um, yeah. And it leaves us with an interesting closing thought because you mentioned at the beginning, you know, what would have happened had twice removed been smeared two instead of twice removed or, yeah. I, you know, had it been, my, I hate my generation as you call it. Yeah. Um, and for me, it's like this sort of sink or swim thing. So, you know, if, 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 DGC is investing more into the band and they expect the band to deliver. Um, either they deliver with Smear 2, which I don't, you know, maybe, maybe they can push Girl in Case to be this breakthrough top 40, you know, US single, which I yeah. doubt, honestly. Um, but maybe, you know, it'll find a little bit more acclaim in like the college charts and it'll give, you know, this shimmer of hope to the band in the States because, you know, it has to make it in the States. Yeah. You can't have, you can't call a DGC album a successful monetary investment if it's only charting on college charts, college radio charts in Canada right. or in UK or whatever. So it has to make it in the States if it, if they sink you know, if, if Smear 2 doesn't pan out, um, then they're onto, their, they're onto a whole bunch of other issues with DGC than just the fact that they decide to break up, uh-huh. right? So for me, it's almost like the band's destiny would have been completely different one way or the other. Uh-huh. So if they turn out to be this, you know, successful US radio group after Smear 2, that means their next album sounds completely different. And they're kind of also coerced into making a different sounding next album um, just based on the fact that, you know, they're, they're profitable. Yeah. So you can't break up after Smear 2. You can't even think about taking a year off and breaking up and, you know, what, what do you mean Andrew's in the Sadie's? And what, you know, right. what, what, what the hell is this? Guys, move to LA. We're doing this together, you know? So that, that would have been the path and i personally i don't think the band would have held that out for very long i think no. the band would have been like that would have been a one or two album thing and then they were done i agree you know and if the, if they sank then i feel as though maybe there would have been a, a higher likelihood that they would have followed their career path that they do now where they regroup 
you know, they might have broken up anyways after having sank. And, uh, you know, they might have broken up anyways and regrouped later and said, we're doing this our way. But it might have also just been the end. Right. You know, so it, a lot of speculation out there. We can both be thankful that it, that the path they took was the path that they took. Yeah. Um, but certainly a lot of material for parallel universe theorists. But, but what did Sloan do that their contemporaries in the mid to late 90s not do, mm. but that classic artists like the Beatles and the Stones and so on do? And, and what those classic artists and Sloan, who were the greatest ever, did was evolve, That's right? right? Which is why you have bands like, and, and, and these guys don't even belong in the same conversation as Sloan, but you know, I'm just thinking off the top of my head, like Big Shiny Tunes shit, like Matthew Good, Band Tea Party, mm. Arlie DPs, mm. blah, 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 I'm Mother Earth. Those bands didn't evolve at all. They, yeah. they sounded the same pretty much their whole career, and then they either just disappeared or whatever, or it's like one guy from the original band is still there, whatever, doing it 20 years later, whatever. That's right. Um, but, but Sloan is in a class all their own because you know, of a multitude of reasons, but just obviously songwriting, the quality of the people in the band, but that they, but they early on went through those changes, especially in 94 to make themselves more timeless and set themselves on a track on a trajectory like those classic artists, which would give them longevity, you Mm -hmm. know? And so because they don't have two smeared albums in a row, you know, um, they gave us the audience more to chew on mm. and that just progressed and echoed through the years. Like the decisions that were made, the writing and the production and everything that happened with twice removed, regardless of how it was originally re- received, yeah. set the template for the future. Absolutely. You know? So that's right. Uh, pull out your copy of twice removed and appreciate the shit out of it. And if you're on Apple music or on Spotify, any of these streaming services, I think they have it on Bandcamp too. Bandcamp. check out all of those twice removed deluxe box set B sides and demos and stuff. It's just mm. awesome shit. So, so thanks to them for that. We've mentioned this on the show before, but God, thank God this fucking band exists. We're also very thankful for you listeners and for your continued patronage of our podcast and we've been getting great messages and feedback from you guys so you know if you do want to hear us talk about something for 17 hours on end um, (laughs) then please hit us up with with feedback on instagram and if you're not on instagram we also have an email address it's sloancast at gmail.com so just you know drop us a line let us know what you think let us know what you like and don't like or if you have any requests in terms of material or in terms of guests that we can have on the podcast then leave that feedback mm-hmm. and we're looking forward to delving into more sort of early 90s topics for the 30th anniversary of the band which is of course this year and i hope that you're ready for more of this very soon absolutely man so like ken said check us out on instagram at sloancast shoot us an email um you know where to find sloan music they're at sloan music everywhere follow the guys individually obviously on instagram thank you so much for listening uh we, we're gonna have some new episodes coming out soon great guests great topics thank you for sticking with us uh and uh let's give it up once again for the greatest band of all time thank you Sloan, for fucking existing we love you and uh yeah so we'll see you next time on the next episode of sloancast have a great one everybody Platypus.